sit back, relax. You're listening to the Lazy Procrastination Podcast. I'm Sophie, and this is The Big Sleep. All right, here we go again. Hi, I hope everyone's well. Sorry for last week. I realized that I um, think I should post maybe twice a month. Maybe I should make this podcast a bi-monthly and every other weekly podcast, if you will. (laughs) This is the second time I'm recording this episode and I can't be bothered to edit. So I'm going to try to say as few ums as I can and to speak in a very fluid manner as if I was on the radio and then hopefully I won't have to edit and then I can just post and be done. And the reason why I'm recording again is that I wasn't that happy with the first one. I thought it wasn't exactly the vibe I want for this new series because, drumroll, exciting, this is the first episode of a new series that I'm going to call the Homeward Homeward Bound series. I can't really pronounce that. I keep realizing that there are so many words I can't pronounce by doing this podcast. It's really humbling. Um, So yeah, in the Homeward Bound series, we're going to talk about home as a concept, home what a concept. And I'm going to take the lens of the five senses and try to like think about home through those five kind of categories. And this first episode is Feels Like Home, where I'm going to try to ask the big questions. What's a home? What feels like home? <laughs> um, it's just that this is such a big topic and it could warrant a whole podcast of its own. It probably has, actually. And there are probably podcasts about home. But yeah, I think homes are fascinating um, as we're moving into autumn and the days are getting shorter and we might have a new lockdown, we're all going to spend more time at home anyways. And maybe with this series, we can try to think about it as a more positive thing. And then hopefully, or at least something that's thought provoking. And then maybe when it rains, we're not going to be sad and depressed. And instead, we're going to think, well, this is good for nature and I get to spend more time at home. I know that's what I'm trying to do these days. It's also the first time ever I have a garden, as I say in every episode, and I think I will continue saying because it's fucking amazing and everyone should have a garden, is my opinion now. Um, And so the earth, the dirt, the soil, I never know how you would say it. I think it's not the earth. The earth is a literal translation from French. The soil? Let's go with that. It was very dry and then it rained and I was like, it's good for the plants. All of my friends are making fun of me because I'm literally the Parisian moving into, <laughs> this is not by any stretch of the imagination, the countryside, but moving into somewhere that has a garden. And I'm like, oh my God, I love nature. Moving on. <laughs> um, I think this year anyways, everyone has spent more time at home. And so we've all had to think about it. Um, and home is such an interesting topic politically personally um it's a very I think it's a very central concept so that's why I feel like it's interesting to talk about it through the five senses and um so the four other episodes of this podcast are going to have guests I hope all four of them already have guests for two of them very exciting guests um you'll see 
I've got one for Sounds Like Home, which is going to be the episode next week, and the one after that, Tastes Like Home. And we're going to talk about home soundscapes and the emotions that certain sounds can remind you of and evoke in you. And then in Tastes Like Home, we're going to talk about, well, food and cooking and how food makes you feel um, and how food can be a really big part of how you understand home. But let's focus on the episode of today. Why do I think that this is such an interesting topic? Um, on the one hand, it's because I read this amazing book that I'm always going on about, and anyone who has any ties to publishing, translated in English, you'll be doing the word a favor. It's called, I said the word, the world a favor. It's called um, Chez Soi at Home by Mona Cholet. And it's amazing. It's a book about home, and it's a book that just, goes through and explores many things that have to do with what a home is in the modern world. Um, the homeless crisis is something that I say crises because you have some in every country, which I will touch on <laughs> a little bit, um, is something that touched on also like the obsession with tiny houses, but also gigantic houses and minimalism and everything you can think about. Of course, like feminist visions of the home. It's a precious, precious book, and someone has my physical copy. I don't think I'll ever get it back because she's not a really close friend, she's a friend of a friend. I think maybe if that friend gets married, maybe I can be like, hey, remember how in 2019 I lent you this book, you want to give it back to me? Uh, but I've got the ebook version that I got the other day. And also for everyone who wants to read it but doesn't want to buy it and speaks French, the text, not formatted, but the whole text is on the Zone website. I'll link it in the podcast notes. So that's one thing that I read when I was in high school. It really made me think of home differently. And I guess the other one is that before this pandemic, <laughs> pre-pandemic, I was really a home buddy. Like I just really like being at home. Um, it's, I don't really, I didn't really care that much about being outside. Um, of course that's changed because now I just want to be outside all the time and I go and I cycle and it's lovely um so yeah I actually hope that it's not a full lockdown we're not talking about the lockdown today we're talking about home as if we lived in a real nice world so um I think there are many things that I could start with when talking about what a home feels like um, and we all have an idea of what our ideal home would be what it would look like and what it would smell like, the rooms that it have, what we would eat when we're there, how we would rest, how we would work, if we wanted to work there. Um, but we do live in a society and so that's complicated by outside forces like capitalism and the heteropatriarchy. Um, yeah, home is a safe, lovely haven for everybody. A house is not a home, as the saying goes. And actually, for a lot of people, a house can't be a home because of what the housing possibilities that we have available for us are. Um, I was thinking about something last night as I was watching a movie wrapped up in a blanket. I tweeted about it, so sorry if you follow me on Twitter. Um, if you don't, you should. <laughs> and I was... Wrapped up in a blanket, I watched a photograph with um, Issa Rae and Nikki Stanfield. It was really nice, I liked it. And also the guy who plays Daniel in Insecure, I'm sorry that I don't know his name. He's so beautiful. So 
sorry, I just wrote some paper because I'm taking notes of what I need to put in the podcast notes. So the photograph was a lovely movie and I was eating pasta, pesto pasta, very simple pleasure. I was on the couch and I just realized that in my old house, like this is a very simple pleasure that's been denied to me in my old house. And I never thought about this so much as during lockdown when I realized the importance of a sofa. And I'd never, but like then I started thinking about it more and more. And this renting economy has led to many people. I don't know if it's as much as a thing in other countries. Um, I've never really heard about that in France, but in the UK, there's a big kind of like roommates economy and people live in um, shared flats and shared houses for, I think, longer than at least in France um, or it's more common. And so a lot of landlords have transformed living rooms into bedrooms. That way you have one more bedroom that you can rent um, so you can make it all more expensive because more people are paying for it. And that's, that was the case in my old flat. My bedroom was the former living room. And you have to like walk through my bedroom to access our tiny balcony. And that means that the only common space was the kitchen with the kitchen table. And during lockdown, I realized that it really takes a toll on you, or at least it really made me sad that I didn't have anywhere to sit that was in my bed or a chair at a table. So it would be either a chair at the kitchen table um, or a chair at my desk or yeah, my beds. And it just made me think about the beauty of a sofa or just the like good armchair, which is somewhere where you can sit without being active, without doing something necessarily. And that's what I was thinking about last night, how a living room, and I'm going to get very like, uh-huh, living room. It says living, it's so living. But it actually is, and that's quite interesting, but it's quite interesting. Oh my God, I, I can't edit this as well because I said I wouldn't and I can't be bothered. So you can hear my internal monologue getting angry at myself for using the same words over and over again. But it is quite interesting that um, it's now deemed kind of optional, that you don't need to have a room that's made to rest and socialize, um, that you it's fine to have only like a bedroom, which is often a bedroom and a study. So somewhere where you can sleep you know like sleep but also chill and also like have sex and also be on your own and also do your homework or work from home um and then a kitchen which is you know where you cook and where you eat which is of course a communal space but it's different it's a place for yeah eating sharing a meal cooking often working as well I'm a big kitchen table worker. I've never really managed to work on my desk. At uni, I kind of had to force myself, but really I worked more like in cafes and at, at the library because I just, I don't know, quite bad at working from my bedroom. I need to have a little bit of separation. Um, why was I saying that? Yeah, because the kitchen table or like, well, at home it was the living room table, but last year it was the kitchen table. It's kind of like those spaces where you just you're doing something, you're active, and that's what a chair is for. A chair is not comfortable to just sit on, which is why we have sofas and armchairs. And I guess an armchair could fit in one of those like separated living rooms, but then you have to make everything fit into one room. And that's just, that's not the ideal home, is it? So that's something I was thinking about, how this is deemed kind of op optional, yeah, in our, um, in this renting economy and how the fact that so this idea of just like having a space for rest or for being um, isn't important, is like embedded in the architecture 
of what we rent, or rather in the modified architecture for four, because um, often it wasn't built like that in the first place. It was just transformed to go with renting. Um, and that's just one of the things that I thought about. Again, that's like, I'm, that's a tiny, tiny problem because... For instance, at least I was in a house where we were like a common household. We all owned or like we all rented the house together, which means that the common spaces were spaces where we all felt comfortable being and staying in. But I have some friends who just rented one room and they, they are in like flat where you just rent a room. That's something that people do. And then it's kind of like uni halls forever because you have your bedroom where you can like be and exist. You can lock it. And then you have access to the bathroom and the kitchen, but it's more supposed to be like spaces of passage and movement, not spaces where you just stay. And that's something that I find insane. But, but I guess, um, yeah, I guess that's something to think about. Um, and why I wanted to start with this kind of like couch and sofa and stuff is because I think when we speak about home and when in this series I'm going to speak about how home felt like for a lot of us and how we make our homes. I think homemaking is a fascinating topic. Um, and like, yeah, what makes something feel like home? I know for me, it's my objects. Like, can I have moved every single year since I turned um, 18, even slightly before that, since I went to uni. Um, but I always kind of feel at home because I have some tiny, I have some random things. Like I'm looking at it right now. I've got this um, glass jars like old amber glass jars that I'd ordered off Etsy when I was in high school because I thought they looked really nice um and then I've been like carrying them through every single one of my rooms but it makes it feel like home or like I get really attached to things in that way because they kind of like come to capture what feels like home to me um but for other people it might be something else it might be the ability to uh, change what's there to stay which you can't do that much when you're renting so that's all interesting things to think about I guess that's something that everyone can think about on their own like what makes home feel like home to you and feel free to share it I'll talk about it in the next podcast or like I'll put it in the insta story and we can have a community that's communicating Oof, community communicating beautiful I'm a slam poet now the fact that I can't edit this, I've really shot myself in the foot, but also I don't want to edit this. So I've said that many times. The laziness is really coming through. I'm really um, paying homage to the mantra of the big sleep. So yeah, taking, talking about home, talking about what it can be, it also, I think, requires recognizing what home can't be and like why it is a huge privilege to be able to talk about home in the way that I think we will in this series. Um, and first of all, which I guess everybody knows, but I will repeat it because we need to think about that more often. Not everyone can afford a house and that's insane because it should be the government's responsibility. But there is a homeless crisis in the UK. There is a homeless crisis in France. And there is also a huge rise in, um, there has been a huge rise in the housing markets and that's something that has really modified people's perspectives. I think our parents or like boomers could think about buying a house without necessarily getting an immense debt and 
they could like own it and sell it and that kind of things. Whereas for a lot of people in my generation, you either like, yeah, we'll take a gigantic mortgage so I can own my house or you just think like, which I think is something that is more um, common in the UK. I feel like in the UK, it's, people feel like, or I don't know if people feel like, but it's more common and encouraged to buy a house relatively young. Um, whereas in front, I think it's more common to rent for longer. There are probably studies on this. Um, that's what I've kind of like observed and read. But um, I'm going to give you some numbers because I jotted them down for once. Um, some of them come from come from um, websites and like things that I've Googled. And some came from uh, the Nationalist book. So in France, between 1998 and 2011, there was a rise in 158% of housing prices in general, and then in certain places, like in Paris, they quadrupled housing prices, quadrupled in these um, 13 years, which isn't really that long, and then it's kept rising since, or anyways, it's interesting to think about that. And then if you also think about the homeless crisis in the UK since 2010, uh, according to Homeless Link, which is a charity which wants to combat homelessness, uh, there's been a rise in 141% in homeless people. Um, and all, obviously all of these stats, well, I mean, the stats in housing prices are quite precise, but then here I'm giving stats on, um, on sorry, homelessness. And then I had some stats as well. Oh, I might have to Google them again, but on um, domestic abuse. And those are all stats that are complicated because not everything is reported. It's hard to measure. And also... There's a difference between people who are homeless and then people who have like non-permanent homes and like so for instance I went to the the Abitaire, uh, Association uh, or foundation rather website which is also a foundation that looks at um, homelessness in France and in France in 2019 there were four million people that are considered ill-housed or badly housed housed mal logis and that includes people who are homeless people who don't have a permanent like solid house so people who will live in like uh, a trailer or in a shed like something that's not built in hard I don't know how you would say that in English it's not a proper house um, and then also people who live in spaces that are too small that don't really have good water <laughs> that don't have electricity all the time that kind of things um and that's all really important, again, to keep in mind when thinking about homes and what's available to people. Um, and when I say what's available to people is that it, this could be different. Uh, for instance, I want to speak for a second about Margaret Thatcher. Apologies, I said her name. I also hate to hear it. Um, and the rights to buy scheme, which was part of the 1980 Housing Act. And that was, that's considered one of the largest, if not the largest, transfer of public property to private owners. The idea of the rights to buy scheme was that people who lived in um, public housing, people who then technically rented from the state, that's how it works, were able to buy their house. And that kind of triggered a huge housing crisis that we're still living in now, because Obviously, when that um, 
parc immobilier. I don't know why all those words are just coming to me in French. I guess because I never have to really look at buying a house or like think about a house in English. Not that I've looked at buying a house in French. I've just heard things because I watched those TV programs when I was a kid, like Recherche appartement ou maison. Um, it's there was TV programs with like letting agents or like um, yeah housing agents. A one housing agent called Stephen Plenza, and he would help people find their perfect house or like renovate their house to like sell it and then I've from there and I think in the depth of my consciousness there's a lot of like technical terms that have stuck with me um so <laughs> sorry for that detour the right to buy scheme was the idea that people could buy the house that they were renting which then means that um there was less and less things to be rented from the government and more and more things to be rented from private landlords that also created a big deficit because that was a regular kind of like surplus or income that was coming to government funds and then when people bought their house like once they were done like obviously they you know take a mortgage pay the mortgage back but once they got the house and that was really encouraged so it, it had like preferential prices and it was um yeah it was just easier to do that then the government like you know need more money so then other rent prices skyrocketed um and we ended up in the wonderful situation that we're here now and i think that's something i want to say for a second is that um public housing is actually really good if you think about it as a concept i think we all have really terrible visions of public housing because we've been living in a neoliberal political economy for a really long time where it's not in well i just talked about margaret thatcher you know there is no such thing as a society we need individuals and families to deal for them like deal with themselves and fence for themselves and i guess like that's also what we're seeing with, i don't guess that's also what we're seeing with the handling of the coronavirus crisis like telling people that it's about them as individuals to do things but i mean i guess the couple of people who are listening to my podcast already know this so i'm not gonna rent for too long but um That's definitely something that you can see in the handling of public housing. And that's why we have such a bad vision of it. It's because they're not properly... Um, oh, God, what's the word? See, that's the kind of things that I can cut when I don't feel too lazy to edit. Um, they're not maintained. Maintained is the word I'm looking for. Maintained properly, so you won't necessarily... Like, they might be really good when they're built, but then they might, like decay fast but if there was more investment in trying to like you know from the state to like make them both affordable and good houses and you know like there's no magic money tree but like often the magic money tree is cut because if you look at this there was a lot of money coming in from people renting public houses money that could be reinvested in public housing which just disappeared once people bought their own houses I'm gonna stop there with the rights to buy scheme, but see that's somewhat something where you can look at how said it's like the possibilities that are given to people because it's about what you can like. Obviously, a private landlord is gonna like one good thing with sorry um, with um, public housing is that it's rent controlled often, um, and that you kind of have ways or you should be able obviously it's not like the state's working wonderfully but in an ideal world we would all in my ideal home it could be publicly it could not be mine like because it could be something I just rent and then I could just look at the world 
around me and not be scared that my children are not going to have a house. So I could be like, it's fine, I'm renting this one and they'll rent their own and it's all good and we'll, we don't need to own something. I'm going to stop going on my crazy rent because that's not what we're talking about. But it is kind of what we're talking about. I want to, something that I've really learned in the past few years um, by reading people who really argue for it. Um, one book that comes to mind that I talk about often is Feminism Interrupted by Lola Olufemi, in which she talks about um, many, many things, but amongst which, which she talks about how we need to demand more, how we can't limit our imagination and how it's not enough to think like, oh, I think, well, because we're talking about homes, it would be nice to like not have black molds and still pay 700 pounds a month in this like privately rented house um but at least i'm lucky because we don't have pests infestations um pest infestations that's the word um but instead we can demand more we can say we want a garden and we want a living room insane but we can demand even more we should at least because otherwise life is really sad so that's what i'm trying to do and i think that's something we can definitely kind of talk about I know definitely with next week's um or is it gonna be next week or is it gonna be the week after that I don't know you know what that'll be a nice little surprise for you it's either every week or it's every other week but the next episode's guest I think we're definitely gonna talk about this kind of like broadening of the imagination um because that's the kind of things we're into but we can demand more is what I was talking about and you can see that with everything like even with the COVID crisis, for instance, when it was a problem of really extreme um, concern for the public health, the government was able to put a temporary solution to the homeless crisis by, at least in London, they've rehoused everyone because hotels were closed. And so they were able to put people who had been homeless into hotel rooms. And then when the situation got a bit better, they just put them back on the street, which is insane and outrageous and I mean I live in Cambridge which is one of the um, places in the UK that has the most homelessness um, rates uh, or the highest sorry and that's something that's insane because I was working with it. like there's so much real estate in Cambridge there are so many old colleges and the rooms aren't even all full but they you know they want rent so they're just renting them out to um, people who come for conferences something else that we're seeing with the current like rent is really the the question here, like something else with Corona, you can see they're encouraging students to come back to college or to um, uni housing, even though they know that it's going to be a problem. And now they're already talking about encouraging people slash forcing them to stay in uni accommodations over Christmas because that would be a problem. If it's going to be a problem at Christmas, it's already a problem now, but they want the rent. Anyways, um, and I think another thing, because it's not just about the fact that, you know, you don't want to pay a lot of money to have a shit house. I mean, it could be just about that fact, but it has to do with so many other things around that because another reason why a house isn't always a home, as I was saying, is that homes can be very abusive spaces. And I'm really lucky that I'm able to think about home as a safe space and as a protective space. But one of the reasons why people aren't always able to leave abusive situations, one of the many reasons, is that it's really fucking hard to find another place to live. And like, obviously... The government has schemes in place, but they're not, they're overcrowded. And so you might have to wait. And, you know, you might think, well, I have a kid. I don't want to risk being on the street. I don't want to risk, you know, living in a very um, 
unsafe situation, then that's that may be yet another reason why people don't leave. And that's how you can see how everything is connected. But that's something else I think it's important to keep in mind when talking about houses and homes. And then beyond talking about like pure abuse, um, or like not pure abuse, that was that would be like an, an issue that's linked to what I just said about homes being abusive or at least oppressive spaces for some people. Uh, and when I say some people, of course, as always, I mean women, uh, gender non-conforming people, trans people, um, gender non- like non-binary people, you know, people who don't conform to the norm. And of course, um, queer people. Or yeah, your family space can be extremely oppressive and abusive and you might want to go, but you might not be able to. Um, and actually, there's also a huge problem in homelessness with the LGBTQ plus youth, which charities, some charities are trying to tackle. And there's things written about that as well. But the last thing I'm sorry, I'm skipping through some stuff because I'm almost at the mark. And as I said, no editing today. I said that so many times. I apologize. I apologize in advance and I'm apologizing in retrospect. Anyways. Um, feminist, there are many feminist debates around domestic labor and the home. And that's something else that I wanted to at least touch on before we like keep going, because we're going to speak about cooking in the episode about food. And that's something that's going to have to be, you know, kept in mind. I'm young. So is my, uh, this is going to be my co-host and we don't have children and we don't have to, we don't have to cook for somebody else every day, which, you know, I think changes your relationship to cooking and foods and wanting to do it or being tired. So that's something else that I definitely wanted to think about and mention, um, which is women at home. So Virginia Woolf, ages ago, I'm gonna say, I'm actually going to look up when this book was published. I'm assuming everyone has read it. If you, not everyone in the world that's terribly pretentious, most of the people who are going to listen to my podcast, because most of you are my friends. It was published in 1929. Um, and it, the book I'm talking about is A Room of One's Own, which is in which she just kind of talks about how to create and to write and to work and just to be happy a woman or anyone else, but she's talking about women, needs to have a room of her own in which she can be alone and not disturbed, and she also needs some money, and obviously she needs some time. But many people don't have a room of their own, especially because houses aren't that big, because real estate is very expensive, even though everything should be free real estate, like the meme says. Um, so that's not what I was on about. I wanted to talk about a room of one's own and feminism. So basically there's like, there's always been kind of a debate or like things to think about when looking at feminism, which is that on the one hand, a lot of people have written about how homes can be a space that's very oppressive and very demanding a lot of labor from women because women are often the people who have to take care of running the house, you know, patriarchal society. And so, you know, when I'm talking about rest and relaxation, and imagination um it can also just be the place where you go and then you have to clean and do the laundry and cook and 
you know, take care of your children, take them to the doctor, etc., 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 which, you know, clashes a little bit. Um, and then often, you know, there's been this idea that then like labor outside could be something that is liberatory to women. But um, as many black feminists have pointed out, um, it's there's a really good discussion of this in Women, Race and Class by Andrea Davis. Uh, if I'm thinking about French books, um, Afrofemme by Moissy or um, Feminisme Décolonial de Françoise Vergès that came out yes, uh, last year. The, those are all books that discuss this. Um, for women of color and for working class women, um, work has always been a thing. It wasn't just about, so there was always this kind of like double labor day. You had to work in the house and you had to work outside of the house. Um, and also for many women, like for many white privileged women to go and work in the outside world, which is liberatory, then they had to have domestic workers who are often women of color, working class women of color. So it's more complicated than just saying the home is necessarily oppressive. Like for women of color and working class women, maybe being rented more time to be at home. Um, not maybe, yes, being rented more time to be at home might be the thing that's liberatory. And we always need to think intersectionally and to kind of like question our assumptions. And I think I'll try to do that throughout the next episodes. Um, and this is coming to an end. Um, there was one last thing I wanted to say in relation to... I just thought about it and it's evading my mind, which was... Wait, I was talking about the home things that are... Well, it just evaded me. Maybe it'll come back. Maybe it won't. Okay, I don't think it will. All right, well, anyways, I hope that through this first episode I showed how houses and homes are... Homes, rather, are a political topic which is also highly personal. Um, and in this series, we'll talk... Oh, no, I remember what I wanted to talk about. Pause! I wanted to talk about working from home and how, obviously, this year, again, we've thought so much about working from home and how that's another topic that we need to think about that can be... Um, that can be very... No, it's not controversial. It's just that it needs to be like measured and balanced because on the one hand, for some people, working from home is necessary. And a lot of, for instance, um, disability rights activists or people who are spokespersons for people living with disabilities have talked about how they've been demanding for years to be able to work from home because, for instance, people who have chronic fatigue, uh, people who have, I said chronic in a really weird way, chronic fatigue or... Um, women who suffer with endometriosis and there's a lot of um, reasons why someone might need to work from home a couple of days a week or a couple of days a month or more and that's something that's never been that a lot of firms have refused to do for the longest time but then when corona happened it's not what was possible and so that's something that for some people being able to work from home would be much easier even though I guess being able to not have to work would be the best for everybody. And then we would be able to do what we want to do. But that's a whole different topic. I guess that would be something that would be good to talk about in the Slow Down series. So whenever I get around to doing an episode on work, I will. Um, but on the other hand, this kind of like onset of working from home means that now there's even less distinction between, you know, work and not work 
And in terms of measuring time, like the idea, you know, the idea would be that you can save commuting and you can stop whenever. But really, if your office is your house and, you know, your personal number is also your work number, then you just start working more and more. And I know I, thankfully, <clears throat> do not work in the corporate world, but um, some friends have like boyfriends who did and like during the crisis or some friends also did and during um the heights of lockdown they were working even more than they usually do like you know they would usually leave the office at like 11 or 10 and now they were leaving like they were just working until midnight 1 a.m nothing was stopping them so in that case working from home isn't a great way to protect workers rights um so yeah again something where we have to like weigh in everything but I was wrapping up before this. So in this series, we'll talk, and I say we because it's me and my guests and you, the readers, the listeners, if you want to, the friends of the pod, if you want to um, message me your thoughts. We'll talk about our perspectives on home. What's a home? What feels like home? What tastes like home? What smells like home? Etc. Etc. In relation with each topic. I hope I get a guest for each because it's nice to speak to people, not just speak to myself um and you know doing so we'll try to remember the politics of it and address them i hope you enjoyed this episode again sorry about apologizing for not editing it so many times i think it's fine i think i didn't um too much you can come for me if i did sorry um and yeah i will speak to you soon bye